This is Angie Hansen with Butterflies and Halos, and you are listening to Success in Iowa. Welcome to this episode of Success in Iowa. I'm Todd Studer. Today, we are joined in studio by a brand new author that uh, longtime residents of Council Bluffs, Iowa, now lives up in Northwest Iowa, Michelle Cowan. Thank you very much, Michelle. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. This is kind of exciting because everything that has been coming together since you had decided to write this book has just been one success story after another, has it not? It has. It. Um, I had to get over the initial fear of publishing my book in a, such a public manner because of all the personal stories in it. And I know some of the stories have some controversy with it, but I know the greater good will be helped by my book. Well, and what you what you have done is you've taken something that is about the worst tragedy that somebody could experience, and you went through, I can only imagine the length of the gr- uh, grief process that you and your family went through. Uh, but I'm going to let you uh, briefly say, tell what the story is uh, behind the book. Okay. Um, when we were living in Council Bluffs, my late husband, Joe, had gone over to Fremont, Nebraska to purchase a used car for me. And when he was en route back to Council Bluffs on March 30th, 2009, he was hit nearly head on by a drunk driver. The drunk driver had actually been overserved at a local bar in North Omaha. And um, we did not find that out right away. So in my book, I do tell the story that we went through in finding out the truth about uh, my late husband's death, the truth that um, the woman had been overserved at a local bar and that Nebraska does not have a dram shop law. Um, Explain what that means, dram shop. Okay. A dram shop law is an old term that was used um, for measurement of alcohol. And back in 2009, when this happened, there was 42 states that had some form of a dram shop law in place. And what that means is that a licensed liquor facility um, that overserves a patron who goes on to kill or injure an innocent person, the the licensed facility can be held responsible. In Iowa, we've had this law in place for a while. But Nebraska is one of eight states back then that didn't have it, and they still don't have it. They have a partial law that affects more where minors are concerned, but not a full dram shop law. So even though uh, at the time of Joe's death, WOWTV had taken a camera and had it recording on the counter in the bar and they were visiting with the bartender who overserved the drunk driver that day and she admitted it on camera that she had been there drinking and she had left the bar and went to get gas and then after that she ran into my husband at the crest of a hill on highway 36 between Fremont and Council Bluffs. What's interesting about this is that the state patrol in Nebraska, they initially stopped interview or investigating the accident correctly because um, they knew she had been at a bar 
prior to the crash, and yet they didn't go in and interview people. They didn't go to the gas station to see if she bought liquor there. And subsequently, after I practically begged, the, begged them to do an inter- or an investigation properly, the evidence had been destroyed at the gas station. So it was five months after the accident when they finally went and completed that investigation. Was it an oversight on their part, or was there something willful that happened? I don't know. That's a good question. But people have asked me, um, how did you know all this? Well, I was given the Nebraska State Patrol investigative report. So I actually have a copy of it. And I didn't ask for it, but somebody um, that had access to it, somebody in power handed it to me and said, if you tell anybody where you got this, I'll deny it, but you should read this. And so after I've had that report for 14 years, I didn't act on it because I, I emotionally wasn't ready to embrace the whole story. I was grieving off and on. And I think uh, some people have asked me, why now, 14 years later? Well, I started losing my vision last year pretty significantly. And um, it actually started the year before, but it got worse last year in January. And I think for me, I asked myself, have you done everything that you want to do while you still have your vision, you know, as much as you have yet? And the thing that nagged at me was that I hadn't completed the book. I've been writing this story for 14 years. And just more of a, say, journaling yeah. and just a, just as a way to process everything? Right. I, initially, I was going to put it in a book format because our daughter was only 15 at the time. And I knew as she became an adult and had her own family, she might have questions. And so I started journaling early on so that I could remember all the details so that she would have it someday. And so as I was going through the process of putting my journaling together in a book format, several people that read it would say, you need to publish this because you're gonna help people. And so that was why I finally decided to go forward and publish it. And I I had to put my own fears aside um, about publishing it because it is so personal. But I know in my heart that I'm doing the right thing. As you were going through the process. Now, obviously, this happened as we're recording this. It happened uh, 14 years ago. Correct. But as as you're going through the process of writing the book, did it bring back a lot of the same anger and grief you were feeling then? Yes. Actually, what happened when I lost my vision, um, it triggered a lot of um, past trauma from loss of Joe. And so it stirred the pot of previous trauma. And so I was kind of hit really hard with all of it at once. And and I actually did get into therapy um, to help me process it better. Um, and... and uh, Writing the book was very therapeutic, to be honest with you. You actually uh, would have a little bit more insight into something like that just for, because of a previous career that you had. Correct. You know, working as, as a psychiatric nurse. Yeah, so you one pro- time yeah, I did. You yep. were probably able to recognize a lot of things in yourself that said, okay, I need to get some help with this. Yes, yes, I actually did. And um, I'm a big believer in getting help uh, when you need it. And... Um, you know, it's the best gift we can give to ourselves is to seek the help when we need it and not ignore it. 
Oh, you're preaching in the choir, sister. I'm telling you. <laughs> yep. I, I, I have done it and still do it. Yeah. And because yeah, it, it's important and it is, uh, for me at this point, it's maintenance. Right. But, well, we need to normalize it in this right. society. You oh. know, there's a lot of things yes. we need to normalize. Some of the feedback I'm getting from my book is from other widows that I finally normalized what the grief process is like because my book is about the grief process. It's about politics because at the time, my daughter, who was then 15 years old, took it on as a talented and gifted project for her high school tag class and it had to do with a societal issue. So she decided to take on the dram shop bill in Nebraska. And we would walk the halls of justice for her to try to find a senator, and we couldn't find anybody to help us. And then one day, I happened to be in Lincoln for a work appointment, and I saw this big billboard um, regarding Tom Osborne, who we all know in Iowa and Nebraska. He's kind of an icon in the area. Anyway, I remember sitting at that stoplight thinking, maybe we should reach out to him. And as a mom who was grieving and watching my daughter grieve so rawly, I didn't want to have her get any more rejections because she was already getting it from the senator. So I reached out to him, his office, and talked to his secretary and asked the secretary, told the secretary what the situation was and would he be willing to talk to my daughter. And he did call me back himself and offered to meet with her. So we- That, that had to have been a, <laughs> a surreal phone call. He became our hero in the story. You know, my husband, Joe, was a big Husker fan. So to me, it was like, I can only imagine what he was thinking from up above that I had made contact with his hero, you know? <laughs> but anyway, we did go down to Omaha, or down to Lincoln and met with Dr. Tom Osborne, and he- helped my daughter um, get connected to Senator Tom Carlson from Holt Ridge, Nebraska, and he agreed to help my daughter and introduce the bill. So probably that doesn't happen without Tom Osborne's in, in involvement. Correct. It didn't. He was our hero. So we worked really hard for two sessions to testify, and Tom actually sat with us and testified with us. In fact, he would call me the night before and assure me that he was going to be there and testify with us. And um, it never passed, though. And what's interesting in my book is I outline the, some of the testimony that took place. And there's a story, two stories in my book that were kind of interesting. One story was this gentleman, this random guy, was sitting in the judiciary hearing room that we were in, and he was there to actually talk about a different bill, not our dram shop bill. And he was listening to all of our testimony, and it was so powerful to him that he actually hopped up to testify and basically looked at the senators and said, this is a no-brainer. Why aren't you doing this? You know, basically, I'm summarizing. And then when we got all done, because we it was us, and we were against high-powered lobbyists for the alcohol industry, as well as bar owners and people like that, that were for not having a dram shop bill. And the goal of having a drum shop bill is to make licensed liquor facilities, such as like a bar or a lounge, be more aware of what they're doing when they're serving these people. And they, they, uh, there's 
server training that takes place. You know, 42 other states are successful in having this program to save lives because it reduces people going out and driving drunk after being at a licensed liquor facility. So anyway, um, when we were testifying, we were testifying against bar owners that were against it. When we got done, I was in the hallway and this woman comes up to me and she, I recognized her as being one of the people that testified against us. And she walked up to me and she said, Michelle, I know we're on wrong, the wrong size or different sides of the fence, but I am really sorry about the loss of your husband. And I thanked her and I said, but we're really not on different sides of the fence because we're here fighting for your safety. You see, it affects everybody. So just because you own a bar, basically, your safety's at risk too in this state. And she looked at me and she said, you're right. She has a young family. So wouldn't they want the road safe for their family too? Had you thought about that before that conversation? That is a powerful statement that no, you just made. No, it just came to me as I was standing there talking to her. I mean, it was so emotional to testify. I remember crying the whole time, off and on. The, the emotions that were bubbling, we were still grieving. The first time we testified, it hadn't even been a year. It was only 10 months after Joe's death. That fast? You moved that quickly? We, we, were, we were working on it within six months. We were, I was driving my daughter around on my own dime to go talk to legislature, law enforcement. She was a 4-H'er in Iowa. She reached out across the state lines to get other 4-H'ers involved. I mean, we were trying to do everything we could to save another family from going through the tragedy we went through. The thing was, it wasn't bringing our Joe back, wasn't bringing my daughter's dad back, and we weren't benefiting from it financially whatsoever. We just wanted to get the word out, try to get a tougher law put in place for everybody's safety. I mean, those people that live in Iowa, like us at the time, we would go to Omaha all the time. So we were crossing over the state line to go over there, and yet I cited an example in my book. There was a lady from Iowa, or I'm sorry, there was a lady from Nebraska that was in Iowa, and she was injured by a drunk driver who had been overserved in a bar in Iowa. She was able to hold that bar responsible to help her with her medical costs and you know, taking care of her. But in the reverse, my husband was in Nebraska and gets killed by a lady that's overserved, and we could do nothing about it. There was no recovery for us. Nothing. You see how important it is for the bordering states, the people that live right. in the states that, that don't have this law, how they should know this? So all of the testimony and all of the back and forth that happened in Lincoln, what was the result of it? They did not pass the law. There was eight senators in the Judiciary Committee. We needed to have the majority of those senators to vote to pass it on. So it never made it out of committee then? It never made it out of committee. Those eight people held it up. Did they give a reason? No. There was two people of those eight that told us they voted for us. That was it. Um, but there was never any explanation as to no, why the no. vote happened that way. Nope. 
Well, I will tell you that uh, one, of imagine, those, but... one of those senators then later on did go on and get a DUI in Nebraska, in Omaha, a couple of years later. Really? At two in the morning. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, there's a lot of layers. Oh, that's here. not even all of it. There's more layers. In the ending of the book, I disclose a letter that was given to me by an executive director in Nebraska that was very important in me understanding just how powerful the alcohol industry is in Nebraska. And I, I, I can't, couldn't disclose the whole letter because I didn't want to get sued. Right. <laughs> but I did have permission from the author of the letter, and I had permission from the company that she worked for, but I, I couldn't disclose it because of the prominent people in the letter. You have consulted legal advice yes. through a lot of this, though, to make sure that you're covered. Yeah, I had an attorney read that part of my book, and he's the one that told me not to actually include all of the letter to protect myself. So he helped me craft that chapter so that. Well, this is the, well, to steal a line from a different publication, the Reader's Digest condensed version. Yes. <laughs> of uh, some of the of what people can read in your book. Let's start talking about the process because as as you mentioned, you knew that you needed to do it and you had a desire and uh, you felt that this was something that needed to be done, but you still had to sit down and do it. Right. Well, I had years of journaling. So the story I already had and people have told me that it should be sold with a box of Kleenexes because it's so real with the grief and the, the loss. And I tell people that's because I wrote a lot of that real time. And so I was feeling all of that at the time, and that's what's coming across. But um, I knew I couldn't do it myself because I was losing my vision to put it actually together in a book form. And as I said, I initially was just writing the book for my family's benefit. But I did enlist the help of a writing coach who would uh, look at chapters and then make recommendations. And she helped me get kind of a rough draft. And then I had an editor. And then beyond that, I knew I still didn't really know what to do to get it actually published. And I had to decide if I wanted to go public or just leave it as it was. And I, after a lot of soul searching and consulting people around me, I decided to make it a public book. And then I um, contacted a company called My Word Publishing. It's kind of a hybrid publisher. You can go the route of self-publishing or traditional. And this is kind of in the middle where... You have a team of people that guide you, but you are self-publishing. So you are still financially responsible for, for every single book that's out there. You paid to have it there. I did. I did. I am financially responsible for all of it. And I paid people to help me because I couldn't do it with my vision issue and because I didn't also know what to do. So um, I had a a managing book consultant. I had another editor. I had a designer who designed the cover and the layout. 
Um, I have a social media person that's helping with that because I can't actually get on and create it myself. So I have a team that helps me. And I was really proud within the first two weeks of it being released on Amazon. It was a bestseller already. And then a couple weeks later, my consultant told me it was in the top 100 books on Amazon. I came in at number 15 for just all the books that they were. What do you credit that to? How did, how did that happen? I don't really know, but I have a lot of family and friends. And a lot of people have been so supportive over the years and have encouraged me to write my story, probably because I post a lot on Facebook. And so anyway, um, I just think it's the circle. Plus, when I became a widow, I connected with a national, well, actually it was an international widow group. And I still am friends in real life with many of those people that I met through that connection. So I've known them for 14 years, some of those people. So you know, I cast a net in kind of a large area because of the widow group, my extended family, Council Bluffs. I was raised in Harlan, Iowa. Now I live in Northwest Iowa. So, you know, this whole side of the state, I know quite a few people. And they'd known my story, too. So I'm sure that's part of it. The title of the book, which we haven't even mentioned yet, by the way, <laughs> is Better Not Bitter. That in itself is a powerful uh, three words that speak can speak to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. How does that title relate to you? The night that Joe died, I was holding my daughter, and I told her that in life, big things happen, and we can choose to let them affect us in a better way or a bitter way. It was our choice to decide. So together, we decide to be better. That night? That night and the next day, in the midst of our grief. I don't know. I I don't know where I got some of the strength that I got, but I know it's because I'm a mom. Because right away, like when I answered the front door and the state patrol was on the other side, I remember thinking as I grabbed the doorknob, I knew what they were coming to tell me. I already knew. And I remember thinking that whatever I said and did was going to imprint on my 15-year-old daughter, so I had to put my mom hat on right away because I needed to protect her. You can't, uh, you can't always leave that hat on, though, because you still have you that you have to take Right. Care of. So when she would go to school, I would break down, or if she was home, I'd... I'd have to take a shower so I could go in the shower and cry my eyes out where she couldn't hear me. I did try to pe protect her the best I could. This is, um, well, you're hitting me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not making that up. You, uh, uh, and, and I, you and I have talked one other time, and I have a general outline of your story, but I don't know all of the details, and yet it is still just from that general outline, it's extremely powerful. So I can see why people are responding to your book the way that they are, and I can see why you felt uh, the need and the passion to be able to write it. So you had mentioned to me that a big part of this was a workshop that you went to. 
Yeah. Up in, uh, for those who aren't from Iowa, we have a resort area in Northwest Iowa called Okaboji. It's really, really nice there. Yep. <laughs> and, and they had a writer's workshop that you attended. Yeah. I, um, before I even kind of started anything, I attended a workshop called the Okaboji Writers Retreat. Um, it's the brainchild of a lady from Des Moines area, and she also has a home up there, um, Julie Gamick. She was connected to the Des Moines Register, and actually at the writers' retreat, that's kind of a kind of a joke up there because a lot of the presenters have connections to the Des Moines Register. But it is the most powerful thing I ever went to, and it is actually the location where I was able to find forgiveness the drunk driver really yeah it was so powerful i they have like um sessions and you can sign up for any session you want to and there was a author there from iowa by the name of deborah engel and she wrote a book one of her books is titled the only little prayer you need plus she has other books and i had read her book and so i was just like in awe that i was going to meet her anyway so i got in her group and one of the participants, uh, things that we did in that little group, there's like maybe 10 of us in a circle outside, and she had us take a piece of paper, and on the paper, we just had to jot down a response to a leading question that we could pick off of a list. And the one I picked was something that you know that others don't know. And I just very quickly, bl- briefly wrote about never getting an apology from the person that killed your husband. And I wrote about those feelings about it being a drunk driver. So um, Deborah had asked us to um, read our things. So I went and I read my little paragraph and everybody got real quiet. And the gal next to me, her name's Carrie, she just very quietly said, I could have been that drunk driver. And then she proceeded to talk about her thing, which was her journey of sobriety. And it was just a God moment that we were placed in that group next to each other. We have since become very good friends. And I write about how that was so powerful to me because then after that, I kind of watched how she was with people. And the thing for me, I think that held up my grief process was because I have never to this day seen a picture of the drunk driver. I have no idea what she looks like. The news never released it. I've tried to Google her. I've never, ever seen a picture of her. So I have no idea what this woman looks like that killed my husband and that crossed over that sacred veil with my husband. And maybe in some kind of weird way, when I met Carrie, it was this feeling of maybe putting a face to the drunk driver. And my heart kind of softened a little bit because I heard her story of, of sobriety and, you know, the challenges of being an alcoholic. And I know from my research that the lady that killed my husband, she, I don't know for sure that I could title her as an alcoholic, but she had a drinking problem. She went to two bars every day. And... After I left that retreat, it took me weeks to kind of process what I was feeling, but it helped me kind of make that step forward to finally, I thought I had forgiven that drunk driver before in my head, in my heart, but I don't think I ever had. But at that point, that after that, 
retreat I was able to. Do you think it's because you, up to that point, you never really had an image of her as a full person? Correct. Just, I agree. Just that all, all that you knew about her was this one act. Yes. Yes. And so it opened my heart up of finding forgiveness, which I'm grateful for because we forgive for ourselves, if you think about it. When you hold all anger and stuff inside yourself, it eats away at you. And when you release it, you find healing in yourself. And it's powerful. And that's what happened to me. Do you know of any consequences that happened with the... She died upon impact. She did? Yeah. That's why I made the comment that she crossed over with my husband. Okay, I see. I see. And I write about all the feelings I had connected to all that in my book. And I will tell you... uh, how I know it is powerful for me is because when I initially started the manuscript, I wanted to name and blame that drunk driver. I wanted her name in print. I wanted to blame her all the way through. And after that healing, I no longer wanted to name her. I took her name out of my book. You did. I, it had been so powerful to me. I had reached a place of forgiveness. Because that's not the story you wanted to tell. No. It was in the beginning, but I healed as it. I worked through everything. And I, after that retreat, I found a level of forgiveness I had never found before. And it was such a peaceful feeling that I was able to, I was able to forgive and let it go. And I didn't want to name her anymore. I, I just wanted her to rest in peace too. Let's uh, dive into when the book has been published and you know that it is out there on Amazon and any other place that it, that it might exist, and you start to see the results come back, and you you start to see we're gaining some traction with this. This is starting to actually do something here. What did that feel like? As as it felt weird because my consultant said you got to get on TikTok, and I'm like I don't even know anything about TikTok, <laughs> and I don't really want to be on TikTok. But the more she encouraged it, she's like that's how you're going to get it beyond your little world. So that's when I went to a family friend's relative or a family member's relative and entrusted her to create social media for me because I didn't know what to do and I couldn't do it with my vision. And she's just done a great job. Um, So one of the videos she placed on TikTok has got 1.2 million views on it. And others have, like she put a new one up this weekend on Sunday, I think, and there's like 19,000 views already. It's just amazing. But the feedback we're getting is like people are connecting to the story. And then I also know it's reaching overseas. She got confirmation this weekend that people are reading my book in the UK and they're loving it. Another friend told me that it was somebody ordered it in Colombia. <laughs> so it's going. It's just mind boggling to me. But the common things that I keep hearing are this. About the 14 years, why now? Well, because I lost my vision, partial vision in my eye. I could potentially lose it in the other eye. And I wanted to make sure that I personally, had I done everything I wanted to accomplish in my life, that I might need my vision for. Number two, that once they start reading it, they can't put it down. Number three, it should be sold with Kleenexes. (laughs) And number four, that I'm normalizing mental health. I'm normalizing grief and loss 
And then I'm educating people about drunk driving effects. I'm educating people about a little bit of the dirty side of politics. Because if you think about it, right now in our world, the gun industry is like a hot topic. Well, there's a lot of parallels with alcohol industry, if you think about it. I'm seeing it. There's a lot of parallels. And the thing with somebody that drinks alcohol, it's one thing if they're in their home and they're drinking. They're not affecting anybody else. Or if they go out and maybe just have one drink, you know, and that's within, like, for their body size and stuff, and that's okay. It's another thing that when they go to a licensed liquor facility and they appear to be drunk and licensed people that should be trained in serving just give them more and more alcohol and then just let them walk out the door. It's, um, in, in your story, I, I, I keep going back to the word powerful and I'm starting to feel like I'm using it as a crutch word because I don't have anything else to say about that, that it, I'm looking for more adjectives, and it just keeps coming back to that. Well, there is another one that you might attach to this book, because we haven't even talked about it yet, the word hope. And I wanted to demonstrate through my writing that even if you love somebody that means the most to you in the world, think about losing a spouse. You lose your best friend, your lover, financial support, parents, children, you lose your whole identity with that. You become from a couple to a single person again, and you have to recreate who you are, but you're grieving the whole time. And it's the most difficult journey to go on. And the person that you want to turn to for comfort isn't there because they're dead. And so I show through my writing that there are ways to work your way through it. But and this is controversial in my book, um, but I am a woman of faith. I grew up, was I'm a cradle Catholic, and I did seek out a medium reading, um, well, actually more than one, because I had hit essentially rock bottom in my grief, and I just didn't think I could move forward anymore. I didn't know how to, and out of desperation, and I write about it in my book, but... Um, the thing that was so powerful when I went to that reading is this. My late husband, he would call himself agnostic, although he did go to church with us. Um, he was raised in a church, but he was raised in a very scientific family. And so it was hard for him to just believe in a source that's bigger than all of us. And when I went to the reading, the gentleman that I visited with, he's from Des Moines, and he had traveled to Omaha, and he was having uh, an open reading. He, when I sat down, one of the things he said to me is, are you mad at God? Now, you look at me, I, you don't know that I believe in God, because I don't like, I don't have a bunch of crosses hanging on me or anything. And I said, no, why would you ask me that? And he said, because your husband is telling me that you know how difficult it was for him in his life to admit when he was wrong which was true. My daughter even talked about it at his funeral in Wake. And he's admitting to you that he was wrong about something. And I said, okay, what's that? And he said, God. Now, that was very powerful because I knew that Joe couldn't admit when he was wrong. 
And for that gentleman to tell me that, and also to tell me that he was wrong about God, and I was right, was exactly what our life, I mean, that's how it was, you know, because he had a hard time believing. So I write about all that. And then I also show glimpses of what happened where I believe I was getting some after-death communications. And it was witnessed by other people. And I detail those stories in my book. As I'm sitting across this uh, desk from you, Michelle, you look happy. I'm happy because I feel like he's still around me and he's cheering me on from the other side. Because one of the readings that I had, they did not know I had a desire to write a book, but he told me from the other side to write the book. I know that there's so much more we don't know about after we die. None of us know, but it's all in what we want to believe. And I chose to believe that, and it actually helped me process my grief and to move forward. And I don't want to spoil the book, but in the epilogue, um, I am remarried now, but in the epilogue, I talk about meeting my second husband and the communication that came across from the medium, which made me feel like it was okay for me to get remarried. Well, this book, Michelle, is not the end of a journey. Oh, this no. is just the next step yeah. of your journey. And I have a feeling that you are in for a tremendous ride. I really believe that. And too many things are coming together for you here that wow. uh, it, to lead me to believe anything else. A lot of things had to fall into place in order for this book to even exist. That's correct. And... Every place that you go, and if you talk to somebody, they they want to carry your book. It's here in town. It's here in Council Bluffs. Yeah, at, Dusted Charm. At Dusted Charm. It's a, a, a shop down on what we call the 100 block in Council Bluffs. And, I mean, Dusted Charm has a lot of clothing and things in there. Uh, do they have other books? I'm not aware of it, but. <laughs> no, I stopped in and gave them a complimentary copy to see if they might want to carry it. And they were all on board. That little book's been passed around amongst this little group of ladies there. They're reading it. But that's the, that's the reaction I'm getting from other places. Um, up northwest where I live, Orange City, um, the Craft Central is carrying it. In Lamar's, Iowa, the Craft Den is carrying it. In Rumson, Iowa, Furnishings on 2nd is carrying it. Plus, I've been donating to public libraries. I have donated a book to the Council Bluffs Public Library, so if somebody is not able to purchase a book, they can go get it at the library and check it out so that they can read it. Um, and as soon as my husband gets done planting the crops, he's a farmer, we plan to take my books and we're going to um, uh, give them to other libraries around Iowa. Well, speaking of library... Uh, you are now in the Library of Congress. Yeah, almost. Well, it's, I, it's on its way there, right? Yep, I've mailed my books. As we are recording this. Yes, today. Your, your books are on their way there. Yep, that's a big deal for me. It's a big deal for anyone. Yeah. That I, is huge. 
I owe a lot of credit to my managing consultant. Her name is Stephanie Kroll, and she just knows her stuff. She has helped me so much, guide me. She's done a lot of the computer work for me that I'm not able to do because I, I just can't be on a computer. So um, she's fabulous. This wouldn't be a reality without her. Well, and with all of this reality and of all of the success that you've had, it's not as if you are getting rich from this. No, you never do. <laughs> I think the ra- people don't realize that an author puts a book on Amazon and Amazon subtracts their cost of publishing and shipping and then they take, you know, I don't know how, I don't know what the actual percentages are, but. So the royalty checks don't, are not, don't have a lot of zeros on them no, is what you're saying. No, they don't. They, they really don't. But that's not the point to this, It's is not it? the point. It's not the point. I want to help people. That's, that's why I started a widow group after I lost Joe. I tried to go to like widow groups and I was in my 40s raising a teenager and I would be in these rooms with people that were my parents' age and I wasn't able to connect with them the way I was grieving. So I and another widower that I met, we started the Council Bluffs Omaha Young Widows Group. It's still going today. All these years later, it's still active on Facebook. They get together and they have dinners and it's great. It's a social and a support place for people that are going through widowhood. The title, Better Not Bitter, A Journey from Heartache to Healing. Michelle Cowan, congratulations. Thank you, Todd. On, on having the, uh, I mean, it's in my hand right here. So <laughs> this, is, this is really big. And uh, I look forward to hearing about the uh, continuing path to success that you're on. You'll be the first to know. Oh, thank you so very much. And uh, again, we thank you for listening to this episode of Success in Iowa. A little choked up. Thanks, Todd. All right. Till next time. Take Bye-bye. care.